This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. LRT, uh, the project's vote on the environmental assessment delayed again until next Wednesday. Uh, what is happening? Where are we on this? And oh my goodness, I'm starting to get that feeling in my gut that this is going to resemble a stadium. Uh, to talk more about this, former mayor for the city of Hamilton, Larry Deany, and he's with us now. Hello, Larry. How you doing today? Hey, I'm doing fine, Scott, and I'm sorry you're under the weather. You sound just fine, though. Yeah, well, I'm confusing everybody, Larry, and that's usually the way I run every day. <laughs> but, but what are your thoughts? And thank you for asking. I appreciate that. So, And I missed the opinionators yesterday, so, uh, you know, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, anyway, Larry, what are your thoughts on where we are with this? Well, it's, I mean, it's classic Hamilton horse patootie or whatever euphemism you may wish to call it's it's just classic it's a polarized uh topic uh, or a topic which has polarized uh the community and it's certainly polarized council and i happen to be at uh, city hall yesterday and bumped into a number of councillors and and they're angry with each other uh they're angry at the fact that they uh, find themselves in this situation they're those who support the project are angry that they can't get enough people on, on their side and those who uh, are opposed or uh, neutral at this point uh, about the project are angry and confused that they find themselves yet again in this situation where they have to deal with a contentious issue. So how we got to that, how we got to that is um, quite frankly a, um, a, uh, you know, a novel all unto itself, but, but it doesn't look good at this point, although I can tell you that people would love to find a compromise that works, whether there's enough time before next uh, uh, Wednesday or before next council meeting remains to be seen. What is the compromise, Larry? Because you know what that sounds like to me when I think of the stadium fiasco? Compromise is how do we actually get the project built with somehow saving face of the councillors that have been shooting themselves in the foot for the last several months or years on this issue? And I mean, you know, when I hear compromise, all I see is a stadium in a bad location that they were trying to get out of in the first place. So again, what concerns me about councillors is they don't really change it, you know, or, or, or stop it or such. They just wreck it so at what point do we do, do we lose the integrity of the project here well and and of course uh, i think uh, and and this may be the saddest part of it all i think people at queen's park are scratching their heads um at the fact that hamilton seems to be balking uh and having received a billion dollar commitment which is what hamilton asked for in the first place so Queen's Park, I think, is saying, wait a minute, you asked for it, we gave it to you, and now you're saying you may not want it, so um, run that by me again. And, of course, the tragic part about that is that how do we, in, in good faith and, and with a straight face, go to the next government project or the next level of government, the feds, and say, hey, we want to partner with you. We know you've got a program. Here's what we'd like to do. Can you support us? I don't know who would take us seriously uh, in uh, in a situation like that, given the history that we've just uh, seen over the last uh, number of months and coming to a, a climax, perhaps, at the next council meeting. So the compromise, I mean, that's, that's the million-dollar question. I don't know whether they have a firm fix on that. I've heard a number of things, which I'm sure you've heard. They've been bandied about. One is, you know, to extend it to uh, to uh, uh, Eastgate Square, which is where it originally was, and that makes a whole bunch of sense. Because let's let me interrupt this. you there. Let me interrupt you there, yeah. Larry. That yeah. makes a whole heck of a lot of sense because that was the original plan in the first place. But right. how is that a deal breaker? How is that a deal maker? Like you well, know, I, I believe there's one councillor that's saying, "Oh, if it goes to the Queenston uh, Circle, I might change my vote." Well, like, wh- how do you justify killing the whole project because it doesn't go to the destination that, that was first thought of? If it goes to Eastgate, he may change his vote. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, well, that's the puzzling part, right? Because there are some councillors who think that we're wasting a billion dollars on the wrong technology. And, and to go to Eastgate apparently adds 200 million to the cost. So if you already think you're wasting a billion, are you going to be willing to now waste a billion too? That just sounds like a guy looking for an out to me. 
and 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 that may be although although you know just on the technical aspect it makes sense uh eastgate is a terminus um uh mcmaster is a terminus and the queenston traffic circle is not um now i would say uh look we need to get eastgate but we are at the traffic circle let's take that and then work on the next leg uh but but it's all got jumbled up in this process that we've been involved in and if you look back at it scott actually part of it is well all of it is of our own making but but it should have been um and it could have been preventable and but it should have been seen beforehand because remember that at key times when certain counselors were looking for an exit ramp they were told that you need two-thirds majority to get to that exit ramp uh, and to reverse the, the, the project. Uh, and, of course, with six councillors being firmly entrenched on the pro side, the opponents could never muster sufficient votes to turn it down directly, and so they're waiting for this indirect way, perhaps, of uh, influencing or, or terminating the project. And and really, hindsight tells us that look, if if the pro side finessed uh, moving forward all along because of this arcane rule around the two thirds majority that was needed, maybe that wasn't the best strategy. Because if you don't have a majority of councillors in support of this project, somehow they're going to find a way to do you in. And this is what we're seeing: death by a thousand cuts. Um, and, and that isn't good for anybody at all. So I'm, I'm optimistic, though, because in talking to people and listening and, and reading what they're saying, I think they're desperate to find, even those who don't like the project as it stands, um, are afraid of saying no because they will be charged with, and I think accurately, of uh, seeing uh, a, a billion dollars slip through their fingers. So they're looking to find some way of accommodating uh, that money in a more palatable to them way, whether it's BRT or extending it to Eastgate or some sort of magic bullet. Uh, whether they can do that before next, way, uh, next Wednesday remains to be seen. But on the other hand, Scott, next Wednesday's date is a bit artificial as well. Remember, we're talking about the environmental assessment. Let's talk about that a bit, Larry. Where are yeah. we now? As you said, it will take two-thirds to kill it. That's not going to happen. Right. So where are we then? What What's the purpose of these stall tactics other than to do what they did with the stadium? And that's not really stop it, just wreck it. Well, and, and uh, of course, you know, if you can't beat it, delay it. So yeah. that's the strategy. And then they can go back They can go back to their constituents and say, look, I didn't vote for it, so, uh, you know, I did what you wanted. I mean, this, yeah. is just, this is just the same old crap that we've been dealing with at this city hall for decades, it seems, Larry. Well, except that if you talk to the councillors directly, they really have, even, and, and, you know, I've stated my position and I tell them at the, I remind them at the start of every discussion that, you know, I've been supportive of this project, although I admit, Unlike them who are on the job, I haven't read every report uh, that's come through, and I haven't seen any of the uh, analyses, financial analyses, as they have. So my support is based on the fact that if you're enhancing public transit, that's good. But if a province or any level of government other than your own gives you a billion dollars, you should take the money and, 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 and use it constructively. So that, that, that's where my support goes. I'll probably, you know, this train's going to come on stream in 2024 if everything goes well and things are not going well i'll need help boarding that plane if i'm going to ride it once (laughs) but this project though is for not even for today it's it's for tomorrow it's for the future it certainly isn't for the past it's it's for it is for the future so where are we in the process um as i as i said you know there was reluctance and rather than finessing support and moving it forward they should have had a hard vote um, you know, some months ago uh, and made a decision then. So where we are now is to construct this project, you need to rip up streets, reconfigure areas, purchase property, and to do any of that environmental work, 
you need an environmental approval. And so to get that, you need an environmental assessment where you lay out a blueprint for what it is you want to do and you take it to the province that's the overarching authority on this and you say, this is what we want to do. Does it pass the environmental standards that everybody needs to pass, whether it's communities or private business? And so you can't build it unless you get this clearance and you can't get the clearance unless you ask for it and you don't ask for it until council approves the terms that the province will use to say yes or no. And so consequently, consequently, that's where they're stuck. You know, it's, it's, it's an important uh, milestone, but it's not the mountain um, in, yeah. in, terms yeah. of, in terms of the overarching project itself. But without getting through this, you can't get to the construction. And so if you're against it and you can't stop the construction, well, you can certainly stop it here. Let me ask you this, Larry. Let me ask you this. I mean, you've been here forever, and... And and, and a day. <laughs> I didn't mean that to make it sound the way it did, Larry. I apologize. But you're still you're certainly well-versed in this stuff. Why does Hamilton do this to itself? Well, you know, was the, did this, does this all stem from the whole Jackson Square Cops Coliseum thing? And, and you know, we built it, and they, and they didn't come. I mean, wh- wh- where have... Where did... The, where did we go off the rails here? No pun intended. Why is it that we can't put faith in something and get behind it? I mean, Kitchener Waterloo's looking at us and saying, we had to pay for a third of this. You're getting it for free. I mean, at what point, how did we get here, Larry? You know, that, that is a great question. And, and, you know, better minds than mine, maybe we'll have to sort of do an analysis on that. But it is classic. I mean, I started my conversation as saying that this is classic sort of Hamilton, whether we deal with Stadia or casinos, or or Red Hill uh, Parkways, or now um, this uh, uh, light rail system. It seems like big ticket items always bring out this combative us versus them, rather than a team working and marching in the same direction. It just seems to be the way Hamilton does big projects. Uh, from you know the 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 the, the history that that I remember. It's, it's, it's always been thus, um, you know, whether urban sprawl versus uh, intensification, uh, you know, the, the, the suburbs uh, against the inner city, even this ward boundary issue, you know, you've got people drawing up lines. So part of it is this combative nature that Hamil- Hamilton has and Hamiltonians have embraced. And part of it is that the media also, like, I mean, you guys have a role in it as well. You like the fact that there is this conflict because it sells more papers. Oh, it, please, know. Larry, well, come on. But, but come on, Scott. It I'd, love, I'd love to be talking about Trump all the time and not this crap. Like, honestly, I've done very little on the LRT because I'm plainly sick of it. I'm sick of the attitude. I mean, you know, it it amazes me how Hamilton feels that less is better some way. That somehow they'll dig in their heels and say, I've got pride, but I got less than everybody else. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I don't know, maybe we do blame it on the escarpment that we're a divided city. But I, I just don't understand why they can't work with people, why Hamilton, the council, can't work with people, work with their constituents, and and make the best out of an opportunity like this. And, and you'd think that a project like this would lend itself to that sort of team building, right? Because <laughs> the biggest hurdle, the biggest hurdle was the funding hurdle. And, and when council said um, to the province, you pay for it and we'll support it, they, some of them were bluffing. Some of them thought that the province, I, I certainly yeah. Yeah. was very skeptical that the province was going to come up with 100% of the funding, but the province did calling our bluff, and now you know yep. the the, uh, the 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 rubber is hitting the road, and and so maybe that's not a great way of doing things. You shouldn't. You should be very serious about what you put forward, rather than hmm. calling somebody's bluff because you're afraid to say no, uh, for fear of, of looking bad. But part of it in this case also is, and and again, you got to look. You got to look at at those counselors that are expressing some reservations. Their reservations are also based on some reporting that staff has done for city council. So there is a report called Rapid Ready that does talk about ridership. 
And it does talk about the things you need to do before you get LRT. But all of that, in that report, as you were building towards that, was overcome by the funding announcement. Mm. When the mayor was able to get a billion dollars from the province, I mean, I went to that announcement at McMaster. We were ready to take the premier uh, and the mayor hoist them on our shoulders and march them around the city. I gotta let you go go with that one, Larry. We're out of time. Larry DeAnne has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, Kathleen Wynne announced housing affordability measures, which included expanding rent control and a foreign buyer's tax. Is this enough to ensure her position uh, as leader for the next election? I don't see how that's going to change much either way. Uh, Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Just great, Scott. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to join us. Henry, do you want to weigh in and give us your thoughts on LRT off the top? Uh, Yeah, well, it's very confusing, and I I guess what I'm most troubled about the whole LRT debate is that there's a a number of people on the council who essentially are, are, are people who are being buffeted by the two sides and really don't seem to have the courage to say, okay, this is where I think we ought to go. I'm yeah. thinking it through, and this is where I think we ought to go. I'm a little concerned about those people who are wavering, who want to postpone things all the time, that, you know, they just, I mean, they really need to think through and say, this is what I want to do, and this is why I want to do it. And I just think, you know, to go one way or another, but, uh, yeah, I just think, that you know, the kind of debates, you know, just listening to a lot of these counselors is not a lot of them, but some of them that I'm, I just don't think we're getting the leadership that we ought to be getting from them. Uh, amen. I agree with that. All right, Henry, let's talk about Kathleen Wynne. First, we'll talk about the uh, housing plan. What are your thoughts on, let's start with rent control, then we'll move to the foreign, uh, foreign uh buyer's tax. What are your thoughts on the whole rent control and, and what she announced this week? Um, well, I think, you know, the uh, w- which rents have been jumping up, particularly in Toronto, and and uh, it's very hard for the government at some point to say that uh, they're going to ignore that. And uh, when the governments do ignore that, they get into, they do get a lot of, into a lot of trouble. Uh, yeah, because some of those rents were jumping up very, you know, very, in a very large way. Uh, affecting a whole bunch of people, and I just don't think any government could ignore that and then get away with it. And uh, I, you know, I so I completely understand. You know, it's a complicated issue. There's economic dimensions and there's political dimensions. And right now, I just think the political dimensions were just so strong that, you know, she really had no choice. Uh, I think a reasonable choice. Otherwise, you know, I think her numbers would have dropped even more. Uh, do more, most parties agree on this? Most parties agree something needs to be done. Well, I think certainly the NDP would be in favor of what she did. Uh, they're very qu- they're quiet about it. She she did something they probably would have done. Uh, the progressive conservatives, sometimes they're awful quiet, and we're really not sure where they stand on a lot of issues. Uh, they oftentimes don't have policies. They just, they just, you know, they harp on things and they criticize, and for the most part, they haven't had, uh, you know, uh, you know, any detailed plans about a lot of things. So uh, I don't think the progressive conservatives really like rent control, but I think they they understand the political dimensions of it. They were... In, the, in their history, they were really burned by it. So, but if we go, most people won't remember this back, back to the 1975 election when the NDP became the official opposition from a third place. Uh, the reason they did is that they started talking about rent control, and suddenly Bill Davis lost his majority mm. to to the NDP. And uh, I don't know how many people would remember it, but I think that was the same type of situation then that we have now. Uh, we have talked about this in the past. Uh, obviously, it came up in the 90s again, and then back when you're talking about in the 70s when the original program came out. Can we compare times then to now? How are they the same? How are they different? Well, it's just when the when the when the rate when the house when the ranks start jumping up very dramatically, you're going to get. I mean, for a lot of people, that just blows their budget wide open. I mean, yeah. we know for so many people in the province, the most important budget to them is their household budget. And suddenly, if they get a letter or a notice from their landlord saying, "Hey, we're increasing your rent by three hundred dollars a month," you know, for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and a lot of people do, rightly or wrongly, that three hundred dollars a month just 
you know, just destroys their budget. And they and I and not, at that point, nothing else matters. Uh, obviously, you're not an economist, but there's different. There's mixed feelings on this whether it will be short term, long term, if it'll work in the end. Is these are usually short term measures, though, are they not? Yeah, they're, they're basically short term measures to sort of, you know, cool down the the increases of the. Uh, of the um, you know of, of of rents now what the government can do and I don't know if they've done this uh, I don't think they have but they could say listen if you want to build beginning of a certain date if you want to build uh, you know a, 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 a an apartment building and, and rent rent out the units we'll say okay for the next four years we're not going to have any rent controls on those apart on on those uh, on, on those uh, you know units that you build so what we'll say is we'll we'll put that in. We're not going to touch that for the next four years or whatever, whatever, whatever sort of thing they have to work out to to get these people to start building, you know, more rental units. And that's essentially what they've done in the past. The here, the problem here is the, the, um, you know, the the last time this was done was 1991. So we're, you know, we're pretty, as I recall, 1991. So you know, we're talking about 20, you know, 26 years ago. So, uh, you know, that, that essentially people who built apartment buildings from 1991 on had, had a long time to, you know, recoup all the, the money they put into an apartment building. Uh, the foreign homebuyers tax, it seems to have slowed the market down in Vancouver. Uh, many are concerned uh, that this may have other ramifications. Uh, again, there's no one sort of silver bullet here, is there? No, uh, I think, in, in, you know, I don't, I, I think it will slow the... Um, uh, yeah, well, primarily in our in Hamilton, sorry, in southern Ontario. And again, I'm not an economist, so I'm out on a limb here. But I think uh, the uh, it'll slow the increases in prices in condos because uh, my impression is, and again, I may not have the facts completely correct, but, you know, there's a lot, and I talked to some people in the industry, and uh, even before they put a shovel in the ground for a condo project, they got all the units sold, and they're not sold to people who are going to live in these units. They're going to sell, they are people who are, number one, are either going to rent them out, uh, or number two, they're going to sell the rights to the unit uh, somewhere down the road without having used, uh, lived in it. And uh, the tax, the way the tax laws work, they have been able to, you know, write this, they write these things, their profits. And oftentimes, there's a big price between the original buyer and a person who buys the rights, you know, nine months later or so, whatever. And they're they're able to use the tax code to. Uh, just uh, you know, get a very low taxation on that uh, on that gain. They don't pay the you know the regular gain, uh, you know that that you would expect that somebody who lived in a place would have to pay. So there's there's really a hole in the tax code there. And I'm uh, uh, now the problem is the federal government is the one that really should have got involved with that because it's really a federal tax law. Right. So they have so we have not been helped by the federal government on this. If they should have they should have basically said. The only way you're going to keep your, you know, get most of your capital, keep your capital gain on, on a residence is you got to live with you. You have to actually live in it for a year, yeah. and not you can't play this game of I buy the rights to a condo before it even goes under construction, uh, and then I sell it, you know, uh, nine months or a year later to for a lot more money, and I haven't even lived in there. And I, I think that is a real problem with, uh, you know, with the, with the tax code there, and that's why a lot of speculators have been going up both. You know, Canadian and foreign speculators. I think my understanding have gone in, gone into it because they found that loophole in the Canadian tax code. All right, let's talk about Premier Wynne and her leadership. Uh, this has been an ongoing discussion, despite uh, her saying that no, she's in. Uh, you know, right the way through the election. Uh, what are your thoughts, and and would it really help at this point if they did bring in a new leader? Uh, well, I think the first thing is, uh, I mean, people pay attention to what she says, but basically, if you're going to leave, you don't. You don't really say it until you're actually leaving, yeah, right? Yeah. Up until the last minute, you say, "I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it." I mean, I heard Dalton McGinty. I was in with a meeting with some a uh, few other some of my students, uh, you know, about three weeks before he announced that he was going to go, and he was just very strenuous and funny, actually, about how he was not going to step down as leader. And then, then, boom! Three weeks later, 
he makes the announcement. So, I mean, but that's normal. You know, that's normal. You deny it right up until the minute you say, I'm leaving. Uh, so I wouldn't pay too much attention to what she has to say. But I think there is a tremendous amount of pressure on her to make a, certainly to make a decision, certainly by the end of June. And a lot of people just don't believe she can recover uh, even with it, with the best policies in the world, that essentially people have made up their mind that they want a new leader. And when people make up their mind, uh, and it may not be fair, I mean, sometimes politics can be very cruel. You can be doing all the right things, and I'm not saying she is, but I don't think even if she was perfect from now until the end of June, I, I can't believe her numbers are going to go up very much, because I, I just think people particularly a lot of people who voted for her, you know, four years ago, uh, three years ago, uh, have made up their mind and they think they need a new hand, a new person in there. And I think a new person who's dynamic, and I think probably young, I think they need a generational change. I mean, I'm not a young guy, so, and I don't dislike older, older leaders, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, you know, I think they, they need to go to a younger person. I, I think the party needs probably somebody, uh, you know, a young dynamic leader in their 40s, essentially, to take over the party. Is there anything that she can do on the electricity file that will change people's minds? Well, she could have, but of course, but the big problem is, is she made a lot of mistakes on this file, and um, I think it's very hard to change it now. Uh, I mean, certainly people are going to be happy when they don't, when they can get a good night's sleep this coming summer overnight, knowing that their uh, electricity prices are lower. But she she could have done something on that a long time ago. Uh, but this, but she made a whole bunch of mistakes in in, in that file, including having a, a, a weak minister to defend her policy. Which I mean, he is so weak in there, and, and I just watch him in the in question period, and I just feel so sorry for him. He just stumbles around. He can't, he can't explain the policy, and he's he was just really an inexperienced. It was a federal politician who essentially was you know came over in a, a bit of a scandalous by-election up in Sudbury, spends a little time in the legislature. Next thing you know, she's giving him the hot potato. Well, I mean, it was unfair to him. I mean, he just can't do the job. So that's part of the problem. Uh, and then she came up with this. Then they came up with this idea that they would they would give a waiver on the provincial tax on energy. Well, of course, the main beneficiary were the people who were using it during, you know, in in the peak hours. Right. Right. Instead of, you know, the government had been told, and not, this is not original with me. The government had been told for a long time, mainly by Gord Miller, who for 15 years was environmental commissioner of this province, he said, what you need to do to fix the pro- a lot of the problems is you need to dr- dramatically drop the uh, off-peak hour rate, drop it by 50 to 60 percent. That's when we got lots of electricity, and, and not only that... It goes on at night, so it means from seven to seven on a normal day, which means that if we've got heat waves, people are going to have a much cheap. You know, they're going to be able to have a good night's sleep, put on their air conditioning, yeah. and for people who pay attention, who are on a tight budget, they will of course do things. Uh, even though I'm not on a tight budget, my wife and I do this. Ah, we don't we don't wash the dishes until seven p.m. I mean, mm-hmm. we or or on a Saturday or Sunday or a holiday. Uh, you know, so there's plenty of times when you can do it and save a lot of money. And, and first of all, I think it make people feel good because it would look like a sale price, right? So you right. you figure, you know, you think you have to think of people as consumers and say, oh my God, look at this big savings if we go on to use the low off peak hours. And I mean, and that and that's when we have all this electricity, electricity that we have to essentially offload into other uh, other jurisdictions. We lose money on it. Well, instead of losing, you know, giving it away at a loss to American states or, or Quebec or Manitoba, I don't know if it goes there, but certainly Amer- local, the American states, why not give, it does. give, give the yeah. advantage to our own people? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, and, and as I said, this has been said for years and years and years, and the government just never listened to this advice. And now I think they, you know, they've made a real hash of it, I think. So will a new leader equal a new party? Is that enough to, uh, to convince people that this party deserves to stay in beyond their long, well, the time that they have been? If you get a new leader in who is articulate and, he is, and, that, and this person is, uh, has a good presence, presence and, and can basically say, come up with some, you know, some quick, you know, come up with some policies. If, so, for example, if, the, if she would step down by June, they would have a party convention probably in early September. They get a new leader. 
So the new leader would be able to have a, a little bit of a fall sitting. He'll be able to have a, thro- a speech from the throne. He'll be able to have a budget before the, before the election. So that new leader would have time to say, okay, we're going to go in a somewhat different direction. And I just think having a new leader who's articulate and who's a compelling leader, you know, could, uh, you know, that people, you know, people would be impressed with. You know, they have a chance. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, the people who voted for Kathleen Wynne, if they had that kind of leader, I think they'd come back to the, you know, there's a good chance that many of them would come back to the Liberal Party. Is there anyone lining up for this job? Who Does anybody want this now? Do they want it after the next election, very similar to those in the PC federal leadership that would run against Trudeau? Uh, I think uh, because you're in power, you have sitting on your bench uh, sitting in the house you've got a whole bunch of cabinet ministers who who have varying degrees of talent and you know some a great deal of talent so you've got people who are ready to go and you're already in power so you know you st- it is easier to hang on when you make that change and i mean we could go look at ontario history and we can look for over 40 years to progressive conservatives from 1944 43 actually up until 1985 they they stayed in power, and what mm-hmm. they did is they constantly changed leaders. And I, the way I look at it, a successful party is essentially a, a party that is like a, a, a group of athletes who are running a relay. You have somebody, you know, run with the baton mm-hmm. beginning, and when that person starts to get tired, they hand it off to a strong, younger person behind them, and you keep doing it. The whole idea is you, you basically have a leader who knows when to go, when, they're, when they've run out of time, when, they, when, they're, when they're getting tired. But parties that fail, it's when the leader, you know, and this is, happens very often in all parties, they're just too, you know, they're just, they just can't give up the power. They love it. They love being number one. And they believe that, you know, they've got, they're the best one, and somehow they're going to be able to convince the public they, can, they, can, uh, they should stay on. And, I th- and so we get a number of people who just overstay their welcome. As I said, it happens in all parties. It happened, happened to Harper. You know, it, hmm. uh, ha- you know, you go over over the you know Britain, the same sort of situation. Hmm. Even Margaret Thatcher had to be pushed out by the senior people in her department. Uh, yeah, it happened. Bob Ray, you know, really should have given up the baton before uh, he mm-hmm. he came to his five-year election. Everybody could knew he was going to lose. Uh, I mean, except maybe him. I don't know. But I mean, you you know, when the people say they want a new le- decide for whatever reason it may be, they want a new premier or new prime minister, you you can't argue with that. I mean, it's going to happen. Once people make up their mind, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult, unless you have a war or something. I mean, you, that might change a bit. But, but other than that, unless you're in a big war, uh, once people make up their mind and they want a new leader, I mean, a party, you know, needs needs a new leader if it's, it's going to hang on to power. Otherwise, it's just going to go down, you know, be kicked out of office, and that's never pleasant. Have the provincial liberals learned anything from Wynn's mistakes here? And, and how do they convince uh, the electorate that this is a different party, even with a new leader? Well, no, no, I think they have to say we've got better policies and, we're, and, and that the new leader has the capability to fix the problems. That's what the new leader has to convince people. Yeah, no, you you never want to repudiate your policy. This was a, a, unfortunately for Paul Martin. This was a mistake he made. He he, in a sense, almost tried repudiated uh, the the Kretchen years. Well, the thing is, people people. You know, pe- people look at that and they say, "Well, aren't you a liberal? You ser- you served in his cabinet all those years. How hmm. can you say you're turning your back on him? Why, do- why didn't you leave before this or criticize him before us? You just can't. You you can't. You can't repudiate your party if you. Uh, but what you can say is, I've got some new policies. I got some new energy, and uh, we're going to do things better. And uh, I'm younger and I'm more energetic and I got some new ideas and give me a chance. Henry Jasek do that. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, always great. I always like talking to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. All right. So yesterday it was announced that WestJet uh, were looking at putting forward a low cost airline. 
Now, um, low cost, I guess, everybody gets everybody's attention, but this is like ultra low cost in the sense that no frills, so everything's a la carte. Uh, like if you want a ticket, I guess that costs the money. Obviously, you want to uh, say hi to the pilot, that's an extra couple of bucks. Uh, want a pillow, that's an extra couple of bucks. Uh, want a movie, that's an extra couple of bucks. Uh, and a lot of people are thinking that we're already getting nickel and dime to death uh, on the airline industry, uh, in the airline industry. I mean, it, 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 it. remember when this was once a very exclusive way to travel and, and now some people um, will compare it to herding cattle. Uh, so is there room for an ultra-low-cost ca- uh, carrier in Canada? Is this just WestJet looking for another piece of the market share and figuring out this is the best way to do it? Uh, let's bring in Changman Jang. He is the assistant professor in the Department of Supply Chain Management at the Asper School of Business, University of Manitoba, specializing in transportation, economics, policy, logistics, and uh, aviation and rail economics, and is with us now. Hello, Changman. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Uh, I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So, as I mentioned, Changman, some would already say we have all of this, that we're being nickeled and dimed to death already. Is there room for an ultra-low-cost carrier in Canada? Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, um, personally, I'm not, like, super optimistic. I mean, uh, let's not be, like, too abrasive, but, um, yeah, I'm not super optimistic and there's one thing that i do want to point out here um which is like people probably pay more attention to the fact that there will be a new low-cost carrier um set up by westjet but this is a bit different from say uh new leaves or you know other low-cost carriers that we have already seen in the market this is uh you know in the industry we call it an airline within airline um, situation, right. which means that it's actually uh, a low-cost carrier, but it's a subsidiary of a full-service carrier, uh, WestJet in this case. Right. So things are, um, yeah, things are a bit different. Uh, in fact, I mean, we have seen a lot of successful cases uh, around the world, like in Asia, in Europe, uh, in US as well. Uh, we don't have a successful um, low-cost carrier in Canada yet. But um, the thing is, if you look at the case, successful case of airline within airline, so a low-cost branch of a major airline, mm-hmm. the success rate is even lower. Wow. So, how, how, yeah. how, do you, how do you explain that? Why is it so much more of a detriment to have an airline within an airline? That's, uh, that's an interesting question because uh, the fact is, you know, as passengers, we care about low fare, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact for the, uh, the trick for the airline is to have the low cost. I mean, they need to have a lower cost base to maintain their low fare. And um, how do you maintain like low low cost? I mean, the traditional successful low cost carriers, they have a few, uh, you know, features. Um, like say, they have a high utilization of the aircraft. They have a, you know, a, a, a shorter turnaround time for the aircraft. They have, you know, a, a short, like a, a, a smaller or a, a lower um, base for the uh, the salary. Salary is actually very important for um, you know the operating cost of airlines. And if you say um, you know one thing or one problems for this airline within airline business is that you know the uh, full service carrier, the major carriers, they always use the same mindset to to operate the right. uh, low cost branch. And, and and also they probably will face a lot of uh, you know reality like the union. I mean, if you, that was my you next cannot, that was my yeah. next question, uh, Changman. Is that uh, how do you do this within uh, you know and make this a lower uh, cost uh, airline to operate? How do you do this within the same company within the same union? Right. I think this is exactly the same like the question that we should ask or like WestJet should ask himself. You know, luckily, to be honest, I mean, uh, although I personally feel that it will be challenging, but we do have some successful cases, like a few. I mean, most of the cases failed, but like, say, uh, in Australia, uh, which is luckily, I mean, Australia looks pretty much uh, like uh, Canada, right? So Australia actually has a very successful case. So they have uh, uh, their fact carrier is called Qantas, and it has a very successful low-cost branch called Jetstar. Mm-hmm. And the, the key here is that you need to keep the two companies independent, the two brands independent. Not only, like, for the Qantas case, they, are, they have separate uh, cabin crew 
bodies. They have separate uh, engineering divisions. They have separate IT systems. They have like separate markets and pretty much separate everything. Like um, it, it's kind of counterintuitive uh, at the first sight because you believe that okay, well, if I have two brands. Maybe I will have economies of scale to yeah. like, let the two to have like IT system and integrate it with each other, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not true because if you do that, I mean, you actually will have to pay more um, than what you can earn from um, this integration because, you know, you have a different mindset of operating the the, the, the airline and also, you know, you use a different set of skills and, and also it's very hard for you to actually control if, if you don't give full independence although you probably own the airline but if you don't give full independence uh, of operation to the low cost branch then you will not really I mean history has, history has proven that I mean you will not be able to really bring down the cost which is detrimental to, um, to this business model do they have let me ask you this if they do introduce an ultra low cost carrier does right. that mean that and they run it as two separate entities WestJet and then the ultra low cost car- uh, carrier does this mean that WestJet has to raise its standards a bit it becomes more or or less of a low cost airline becomes more of an all inclusive type airline where everything isn't a la carte and then they design this model to be that low cost carrier would that make more sense Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, yeah, one thing, um, you know, one question I have in mind when I saw this news is that, well, yeah, I mean, WestJet, I mean, so right now, I guess people will laugh if I I say that WestJet is a low-cost carrier, right? But it started as a low-cost carrier. That's the reason. And they're already run that way. Like, it already is a la carte. So how do you make it more a la carte? (laughs) Right, yeah, that's exactly the question to ask. I mean, I think... They might have some room, but it's going to be hard because, again, um, WestJet doesn't do a lot of connection, right? I mean, for the other major airlines who has a low-cost branch, they are mainly like they use hub and spoke and, and let their uh, subsidiary, low-cost subsidiary to like run point-to-point. And, I mean, there might be some room for WestJet to do it, but it's going to be hard to differentiate because the key point is that you need to separate the two uh, the two brands, and then you have to differentiate the two, um, like in a very clear yeah. fashion. Or else, like, how can people tell whether I'm taking a low cost or ultra low cost, right? So, yeah, Scott, you're absolutely right about that on this point. So, that being said, how do you take a WestJet and make it even more cost effective? Make it even more a la carte? What What else can they take away from us and make us pay? What would be the difference, I guess, is the question, between a WestJet and their ultra low cost carrier? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be interesting to, uh, to follow. But I think uh, what they can do is, like, I mean, the traditional WestJet business model is um, kind of like... Um, copy from the Southwest business model, which is the first low-cost carrier in the world. But nowadays, uh, the, like the low-cost business model that we, uh, we talk about are more like the Ryanair one. So Ryanair kind of like copy from Southwest, but they like went even further. So they pretty much unbundle everything like you have mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So right now, like if you buy a ticket, pretty much it means that you are only uh, eligible to just buy with a seat, a seat belt, you know, from A to B, and everything else you want, you have to pay extra. And this started from, like, you know, um, Ryanair, like, they went, um, like, there was one discussion um, at a point of time that, I mean, they, they will even charge the passengers for using the toilet uh, on board. I was going to, ba- is that the next thing? That's no, what I was I about to ask so. you. Yeah. I mean, that's like, uh, like, Ryanair, like, they announced that, but eventually because the customers become too angry, so it's like, well, it's inhumane, so they, they took it away. So I don't think, like, in Canada, we, we will tolerate that. Um, but, but I think uh, you, you will see more unbundling of services, pretty much, like, um, um, if you follow the news, like, uh, American Airlines and other, like, United, those major airlines, they started to charge the, uh, to, to offer the so-called basic economy class, right? Mm-hmm. So so not only like right now we are pretty accustomed to the fact that we have to pay extra to have meal on board to check our bags. But uh for say if you look at a basic economy, like you're not even able to bring a full size carry on. Yeah. Because if you use the uh the um over uh, overhead bins, you will need to pay. Yeah. So I guess that's probably the only thing um, you know, like just to go to the extreme 
um, if we we really like Russia really wants to have like a huge cost difference. I mean, they probably will make the configuration of the airplanes like even tighter, so you fit more passengers into the plane and have like you know more um, add-on services. Like they may be able to run. Say in in Europe, we see some cases that they uh, promote commercial um, uh, purchase like on board. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that they can do. I'm not quite sure whether they will wow. do it or not. Wow. Yeah, but um, yeah. <laughs> Get other services while you're flying. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and my suggestion is like I'm not, I I'm not very optimistic uh, to see like uh, this business model to I mean unless WestJet is very successful, but uh, it might be there for uh, for for a period of time, but it might not be there forever. So my suggestion. For the passengers, like when you have a choice, when you have an uh, opportunity to grab, you know, a, a low fare ticket, because WestJet, if it, it does so, it probably will be pretty aggressive in terms of, you know, um, grabbing the market share. So they will actually offer a lower fare. Um, so in, in in that case, if you have a chance, you know, just try to get it, <laughs> because it's not going to be there for long, um, according to my. Yeah. Changman, is there any chance that, I mean, if you ask air travelers, they'll say it's getting worse. It's, it's hard, mm-hmm. like the, the seat sizes are getting smaller. Everything's just, it, exactly. it's just, it's getting, it's getting more and more difficult. And we, we certainly saw what happened with United Airlines in the last week or so, and, and them yeah. removing a passenger from the plane. Yeah. So clearly the, the, the airline industries, uh, I mean, they're, they're not really known for looking after the passenger. So where is the airline or the company out there that says, that uses, a slogan like we're not going to treat you like cattle we're not necessarily going to make you first class but we're going to look after everything the way it used to be is there any market for that anywhere in this in this mix well uh, sadly um you know uh scott the, the the answer that i can offer to you uh at this moment is that uh well we probably have services um you know, in other countries that are better compared with the North American norm, say, uh, you know, Emirates in the Middle East, yeah. um, you know, Singapore, maybe like it, the Japanese airlines, mm-hmm. they, they, they are all famous for their uh, good services. But um, the sad fact about industry is that um, it's also like we are partially, like we, we also need to be, like blame ourselves because the customers are eventually the, the driving forces for mm-hmm. the choice of the airlines, right? But but I can see like uh, the, the deterioration of um, you know service is not only uh, happening here; it's happening all across the world. I mean, we have heard about the deterioration of service for Singapore Airlines, Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, Emirates is kind of like a special case right now. They have a lot of money to. Um, um, so Emirates, like the Middle Eastern, um, the big four uh, Middle Eastern airlines, they still have pretty good uh, service. But the traditional good service airlines, they are also deteriorating because mm. of the, uh, yeah, that's the just the market fact. So, so uh, what yeah. about uh, here in Hamilton, we have New Leaf. Uh, how are they doing? How is this model different from, say, what a WestJet would, would uh, construct? Right. Um, New Leafs is actually very interesting uh, because, to be honest, they're not really a, an airline. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you follow the like the business model, um, you'll find that New Leafs pretty much outsource everything. So he, New Leafs pretty much like uh, wet leased. Um, that's the, the term. So so it doesn't um, take care of anything uh, about the air operation. So it has another airline that actually takes care of the passengers, right. like the the flying and things. So New Leafs is more like. Uh, uh, a fancier um, ticket seller and a marketing company um, that sells the service. Is that the new? Mo- is that a new model? I don't. Uh, I, I I doubt it. I doubt yeah. it. To be honest, again, I I I've been too pessimistic today. But um, I'm sorry about it. But um, that's okay. The fact is, yeah. I mean, if you, how can you actually make the cost lower if you add one more layer? I mean, you can say, okay, New Leafs is better at marketing. It has a, but I mean, it, it's kind of like you know, you add a middleman, you know, in between, right? So, so I I don't really see uh, this as a very sustainable model because it, it seems that if you know you can um, reduce the cost, then the airline can do it itself. Why does it needs to find someone to do the marketing? Because eventually, you know, the 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 catch here is the low fare, right? right. So. 
So if you add another player um, into the picture, then it means that you probably have a higher operating cost. So uh, and and also um, another thing is uh, in in the current political environment, uh, we're not really very um, friendly to uh, low cost carrier or ultra low cost carrier, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are a market dominated by the big two, Air Canada and, and WestJet. No matter what they say, I mean, the reason why WestJet wants to set up uh, a brand, uh, a low-cost branch, and like you know, Air Canada that, uh, did it before. So, so, but the, the reason why they want to do it is they, they don't want to face the competition from these newer, um, right. you know, competitors. So, so I mean, they're. I have to say, like, um, New Leafs is not doing, according to my knowledge, they're not doing particularly well. I mean, they're even struggling to get the license and things. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm I, not, like, say, um, particularly optimistic about uh, whether we'll actually still be able to see these airlines, like, in uh, like in a few years. Changman, what about the health of the airline industry? I remember hearing if you want to lose money, you start an airline because uh, right, the profit yeah. margins are so so exactly. so small. But that being said, there's certainly no shortage of people traveling around the world. So, what is the health of this industry? Well, um, airline industry. I mean, I have a course in the airline industry. So the like chapter one, you know, the first class I have is like, okay, so I just want to de illusion you guys. So pretty much, uh, this is a company, like an industry that has been suffering from low profitability for a very, very long period of time. And it's like, it has such a high level risk. So it's not only about the average profit to be right. low, but also there fluctuates a lot. So some some years you might be better, but most of the years you actually are miserable. So the, the, it, it's driven by a lot of um, different factors. I mean, airline, I mean, if you look at the other, um, you know, uh, players in the aviation value chain say that uh, airport is a bit special because means uh, they're mostly public. But for example, aircraft manufacturer, right? Um, you know, even the uh, so-called computer reservation systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, the the travel agents. They are making decent profit, and and the reason why airlines are um, probably the worst, uh, even along the uh, aviation value chain, is because they're, like. They're simply like they cannot differentiate themselves, yeah. and there's too much competition, and they're kind of like compete with each other to death, and and yeah, I mean, it's, although the probably we we see a very healthy trend of a passing like travel growth, um, you know, during the the years, mm-hmm. but but the problem is like they're not really able to sustain their their profit um, in in the long term because what uh, other than the demand because demand fluctuates a lot. I mean, the travel market yeah. is a so-called pro-cyclical de- uh, market, which means that when the economy is good, then we, ha- we have a lot more people wants to travel. When the economy is, is bad, then there are like, a lot less people wants to travel. So so in that case, then it's very hard to predict uh, for the airlines to plan their um, capacity. And what is even worse is that compared with this very fluctuating demand, the supply or the capacity is very rigid. Okay, so I need if I place an order to uh, to get a new aircraft. It takes me a few years to get it. Yeah. And when I get it, like tomorrow, if I you know the demand uh, the market becomes worse, then how can I get rid of it, right? So yeah. I still have this aircraft, and and the fixed investment, this um, you know the asset investment are the the biggest chunk of the the money that you have put into the industry. So. So, I mean, when you have a very, very uh, fluctuating demand and a very, very uh, rigid supply, then, you know, the the airlines, I I, I doubt it can perform better. Changman Jang has been with us, assistant professor in the Department of Supply Chain Management at the Asper School of Business, University of Manitoba. Changman, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.